Please open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. And as you're turning there, how would you describe to someone what it's like to be a Christian? Let's say you're, you're talking to someone and it comes up in conversation. because it, Of course it would, because you're, you're being bold, you're trying to be a good witness for the Lord Jesus. And so it comes up in conversation that you're a Christian. And this person pauses and has an inquiring look on their face and says, What's that like? What's that like to be a Christian? That's a very broad question. How in the world would you respond? There's probably dozens of ways that it could be described. What one way would you choose to describe it? How would you explain it? However you would choose to answer... In some way, you would be describing your relationship to God. Last week, we were looking at these last few verses in chapter 3 in Galatians, where Paul was describing our relationship to the law and how that relationship changed when Jesus came. And what we didn't get to last week is how that change in our relationship to the law brings about a tremendous change in our relationship to God. So keep this question in mind. How would you describe to someone what it's like to be a Christian? And then if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. These last verses of Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 23. This is the Word of God. Now before faith came... We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. May God bless, may he richly bless the reading, the teaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible and authoritative word. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. It's a gift of your grace to us that you reveal yourself to us, that you, that you long to be known, that you long for us to know you, that you long for us to be reconciled to you, that you long for us to be your sons, and that you made a way for that to be possible. So Father, this morning as we dig into your word, through the power and the work of your Holy Spirit, would you make it clear, would you make it plain what it is that you have done in and through Christ to bring us to you as your sons? 
pray that you would do that for us and for your glory. We ask it in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. Now, I'm not sure if being a son of God, if, if having God as Father would be the way that you would begin describing what it's like to be a Christian. But it sure would be a solid place to get started from. Our being adopted as children of God is at the very core of what it means to be a Christian. And it is hardly a topic that can be covered in a single sermon on a single Sunday morning. But we'll do our best to at least explore what's contained in in four verses this morning. We're going to focus on 26 through 29. And what we don't get to this week, don't worry, there's lots more in the beginning of chapter 4 about our adoption about our sonship and what that means and what all that entails. Three things to accomplish this morning by looking at these four verses. The first is to look at this, this change in our relationship to God that faith brings. The second would be to, to explore a bit about how that change happens. And then thirdly, what are the implications of that change? And specifically as it relates to, to this Galatian context, that's what we're dealing with. Uh, is these churches, these Christians in Galatia, and, and the struggles they were facing. And so, how does the change in our relationship to God that faith brings, that Christ makes possible, uh, what implications does that have for us in our relationships? So, to get us started, uh, we're going to take one brief look at verse 25 as it's attached to 26. But now that faith has come, We're no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So, uh, we saw last week the old relationship. The old relationship is that we were prisoners, we were were under the guardianship of the law, and we explored that last week. We're not going to rehash that. But now the relationship is one of being sons. So that's the change in relationship that faith brings. We're no longer captives or prisoners of law. We're sons of God. A million things that you could say about that and that need to be said about that. I just want to bullet point four of them for you that I think come more or less directly from, from this passage, from verse 26. Sons of God. That's our relationship to God now. And I found myself this week in in my notes when I would go through it and I'd be reading. I kept writing down this new relationship that we have, right? This new relationship that we have as, as sons. And so I realized that I needed to put an asterisk next to that because it's new. Certainly being sons is new. But having a relationship to God is not new. Now, why do I want to point that out? There already was an existing relationship to God. It just wasn't a good one. It was a very broken one. It was one that that Scripture describes where we we were at enmity with God. We were His enemies. Right? We were in rebellion to 
God. We were hostile to God. We were opposed to Him. So, so we need to be careful in talking about a relationship to God and in talking to others about a relationship to God, what it's like to have a relationship to God. We're not offering a relationship to God in a vacuum. We're not saying, oh, wouldn't you like to have a relationship with God? Because that's something that folks might say, eh, thanks, but no thanks. Life's pretty full. I'm good. I don't necessarily need a relationship to God, I don't think. But here's the reality that we need to communicate, that we need to understand and grasp for, our help, for ourselves. We have a relationship to God. <laughs> Everyone does. We're not starting from some neutral position. You're either his enemy or you're his child. And so that leads to my second little bullet point. We're not all children of God. His fatherhood is not universal. Now, I know that's a nice sentiment. I know that some of you may bristle when I say we're not all his children. Right? It, it sure is warm and fuzzy, right, to say that we all are and buy the world a Coke and let's all sing in perfect harmony. Um, but no, no, that's not what Paul is saying. That's not what the Bible teaches. Paul is writing a letter to Christians. He's writing a letter to the churches in Galatia, and he's saying to you all, you are all sons of God. You who are in Christ are all sons of God. See, having God as Father, being His child, is at the essence of what it means to be a Christian. It's an amazing blessing. Right? It's how Jesus taught us to pray, right? When you approach God Almighty, the Creator in prayer, Call him our father. And so, so having him as father, being his child, is this amazing blessing. And it's one that we cheapen greatly and we water down terribly when we allow it to be applied indiscriminately to everyone under the sun. Now, is he creator of all? Absolutely. Does, does he exercise some measure of care and concern for all that he has created? Yes. Is he the ruler of all? Certainly. Will he be the judge of all? Definitely. But Scripture is very clear about who he is father to. Think about John 1.12. As John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is describing the work of the Son, he says, But to all who did receive him, speaking of the Son, speaking of Christ, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Not something you automatically already were. It's a right that comes about 
with receiving Christ, with placing faith in Christ. So it's not universal. Uh, Third little bullet point under this first section about being sons of God is that it is sons of God and not daughters of God. Now, ladies, hear me out. Here's one place, ladies, where you would actually want to be called a son of God and not a daughter of God. Let me explain. Sometimes in Scripture, there are places when we legitimately need to be more inclusive with the pronouns and with the gender references. Even in in chapter 3, if you've got your Bibles open, glance up to chapter 3, verse 15. Paul says, to give a human example, brothers... And then most of your translations are going to have a little footnote, a little number or letter right after brothers. And then down at the bottom in the teeny tiny print that I can't read anymore, it says brothers and sisters. Right? And that's a legitimate move because that Greek word is best translated siblings. Right? It is a, is a plural noun that would indicate the siblings in a family, be they male or female. Right? So that's a legitimate move, and that's helpful for us to see, all right, uh, to give a human example, brothers and sisters, because he's talking about to both. He's not singling out men there for any special purpose. But, and and so, so saying brothers and sisters doesn't change anything about the meaning there. But in verse 26, Paul says we are all sons of God. And it's the word, therefore, a son, a, a male descendant. And we don't want to change this to sons and daughters. And that's not because we're trying to exclude women. That's because we're actually trying to include them. Paul's talking about sonship. He uses the word son. He's talking about the rights and privileges of being a son which would include having an inheritance. Because that's a a big deal about what Paul is doing here in Galatians. He's talking about being a descendant, being an heir of Abraham. Receiving, inheriting these promised blessings. See, sons were heirs. Daughters were not. They couldn't inherit Remember that from our time in Joshua. There was this, the story of, of Zelophehad's daughters, right? Having to appeal to Moses and then to remind Joshua, hey, though we're, though we're just daughters, there weren't any sons in this family. Moses inquired of the Lord and said that we could inherit as an exception to the rule, that we could inherit property. So, so daughters could not inherit. It was one of the many ways that, that women were marginalized or overlooked, So by saying sons here, by saying we are all sons of God, he's including women in the blessing of becoming an heir. And that's language that we'll look at some more next week when we get into chapter 4 and we talk some more about being an heir. All right. So at least for this instance, ladies, consider yourselves sons. Uh, The fourth little bullet point under this first part. This is a present reality. Being sons of God is not something to be aspired 
to. It's not something to be worked toward. It's something that if you are a Christian, you are. Present tense. See, it doesn't say you all will be sons of God, you all can be sons of God. It says now that faith has come, you all are. You don't ever work your way into a family. You, You don't ever earn adoption. See, faith came and it secured forever as a present reality your sonship, my sonship. Now, like I said, there are a thousand things that could be said about adoption and about our sonship, um, but we need to move to the second point. And, and, and it's how this change in relationship happens. So there, there's been a change. We're no longer under the guardianship of the law. We're no longer held prisoner by the law. We're now sons of God. How did this happen? It happened through our union with Christ. Now, that's a theological concept, if ever there was one. A deep theological concept. An important theological concept. Five times in these four verses... Paul is going to refer in some way to our, to our union with Christ, to our being united to him. So let, let's just list those. Glance down verse 26 through 29. And so the first thing we see in 26 and in 28 is in Christ Jesus. Super significant three words that we can easily just kind of race over as we're reading. In Christ Jesus. Then in 27, this phrase, baptized into Christ. Also in verse 27, put on Christ. And then in 29, you are Christ's. So, so the, this possessive, uh, you, you belong to him. He, he, he owns you. He possesses you. Now in this list, uh, the, the first and the last, those are, those are fairly straightforward. But it's the middle two that might need a little work on. Right? It is, is Paul saying you have to be baptized to be a son of God? Do you have to be baptized to be saved? And the answer is Yes. That's exactly what Paul is saying. You have to be baptized to be a son of God. You have to be baptized to be saved. Do I have your attention now? Good. Paul's saying you have to be baptized to be in Christ. You have to be baptized to be a son of God. But Paul is not talking about the symbol of baptism, which water represents. He's talking about the actual baptism, which is a work of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes... And he uncovers blind eyes. 
He unstops deaf ears. He removes hearts of stone and places in their place hearts of flesh. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that elsewhere Paul uh, has referred to, uh, uh, Titus 3.5. He calls it the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And so, of course, this is what our sacrament, when we take water and when we sprinkle, that's what that is pointing to, is the actual work that the Holy Spirit does when He's good and ready to give the new birth, to create new life where there was no life. So so don't get tripped up here, right? Paul's writing this letter to a bunch of Jewish Christians to get them to stop placing their faith in an outward sign, circumcision. So he's not about to here say, now replace that one outward sign with another outward sign. He's not talking about and insisting on water baptism, a sign, a symbol of the big thing that he is talking. He's talking about the Holy Spirit's work. When he he mentions baptism, when he mentions being baptized into Christ, he's referring to the the whole of conversion. He's referring to what has already happened when the Holy Spirit came and did his thing so that you could place your faith in Christ. All right, so for everyone who has been given the new birth, for everyone who's been cleansed, who is now a son, for those that has happened to, that have been baptized into Christ, it is also as if, so Paul's piling up metaphors on top of one another to help us get this picture. Of those who that is true, you have also put on Christ here in the second part of 27. Right? That, that, that's the language of getting dressed. Right? You've put on Christ as if Christ were a garment, as if he were clothing. And so it, it's another metaphor that Paul uses about our being united to Christ. It, it, we're, we're dressed in Jesus. He, he's the uniform that we're wearing, right? What do uniforms help you? I mean, you can just see somebody in a uniform, and you know who they are. You know what their job is, what their function is, what their role is. It's a policeman. It's a nurse, Right? It's how we're identified with Christ. It's how we're covered by Him. It's how we come to look like Him. And it is how we come to be accepted by the Father. We're in Him We've put him on. We are, we're clothed in him, which is a, a metaphor that Paul loves to use. It's all throughout the New Testament, being clothed in Christ. So that when the Father looks at us, who does he see? He doesn't see me and all of my failings and sin and filth. He sees Jesus. I've been clothed in him. I've, I've put him on as my garment, as my covering. And so when the Father looks at me, he sees his perfect and spotless Son. Now, 
This is super duper extra important. All of this in Christ, baptized into, put on, you are Christ. All of this union with Christ stuff is how we are connected to everything that Christ has ever done for us. Our union with Christ, our being united to Him, is how we are connected to everything He has done on our behalf and for us. We often speak of the gospel. We say things like, Christ died for my sins. Or, Christ lived a righteous life for me. True statements, matters of fact. But you need to ask yourself an important question if you have not already. We, we make these statements about what Christ has done, but the question needs to arise, how does that apply to me? Think through this logically with me. Right? It's nice that he died on the cross, but that's what he did. Right? That's his death. I didn't do that. He did that. Right? And, and Scripture's clear. The wages of sin, of which I have a countless number, is death. That's what my sins have earned. So how do I get credit for his death? Right? It's great that he never sinned. It's great that he perfectly fulfilled all the law. It's great that he was holy. But he did that. I didn't do that. I continue to screw up at every point of the law where he perfectly fulfilled every point of the law. And Scripture is clear. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So how does what He did do me any good? It's because we're united to Him. And so these little phrases that we just speed right past about being in Christ Jesus, about having put him on, about being baptized into him, about being his, y'all, that is how supernaturally and mysteriously we're connected to him and to what he has done. Our union with him means that what he has done becomes what we have done. We're we're united to him in his death, Romans says. We're also united to him in his resurrection. (laughs) That's how we get the credit for having died. 
for having paid the penalty for our sin and rebellion. We're united to Him in the righteous life that He lived. That's how we get credit. That's how we are accepted. That's how the Father can treat us as if we perfectly obeyed. I think this is one of the the concepts, probably second to the Trinity, that is most difficult to wrap our minds around. But oh, how we need to meditate on passages like this and try to wrap our mind around it. Of what it means to be in Him and He in us. So, with the little bit that we can wrap our minds around it, Imagine how Paul must have been beating his head against a wall when he heard that the Christians he left back in Galatia were now thinking that they had to somehow add something to what Christ had done. Had to somehow add something to being united to him in order to be fully accepted. How absolutely flabbergasted Paul must have been that these Christians had been duped into thinking that what Christ did was almost enough. And that we've just got to add a little bit more to put ourselves over the top. What folly! It would be like, you get these emails, right? Work from home. Set your own hours. Be your own boss. Make $500 a month. Make $1,000 a month, right? And, and it's some multi-level marketing kind of thing, right? Sell essential oils or whitening toothpaste. Or, and those are things, those are great. Some of you probably do those, and that's wonderful. But imagine Bill Gates getting one of those emails and thinking, oh, this is it. This is it. This is what will finally put me over the top. I can be my own boss. I can make $500 a month. That's stupid. Right? That's absurd. And that's exactly the kind of thing that we're doing when we think that we've got something to add to what Christ has done for us. To what is ours already as sons, because we're we're heirs now. We're gonna inherit the whole thing because of what Christ has done and because of our union with him but we think we've got this little thing that we can do that'll really make us sure about that. We're sons. We are accepted as such because faith comes, and when it comes, it it unites us to, it connects us to Christ and all of what he has done for us. So uh, our union with Christ then is, is the basis for that changed relationship with God. It is also the basis of our relationship with each other. And that's the third point.
there are now no, there can now be no barriers. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, think again about the context of the letter. Let's plug it back into uh, what it meant in Galatia before we try to figure out what it means for Orangeburg. Jewish Christians telling Gentile converts to Christianity, you can't be fully accepted until you become Jewish like us. See, guys, you're off to a good start, but there's this barrier that you need to cross. God's almost as pleased with you as he is with us. Just need a little snip, snip, and you'll be there. And Paul says that is crazy. That is folly. If you only knew how your relationship to God had been changed You would never suggest crazy things like that. If if you wrapped your mind around what it means to be a son of God, then you would realize that all the sons of the same father are necessarily brothers and sisters. That everyone who has been united to Christ... has of necessity been united to everyone else who's been united to Christ. We are all one in Christ, Paul says. Literally, that verse 28 says, we are all one person. We are all one person in Christ. And that fits with the rest of what he teaches in the New Testament. Right? If we are, we're not the bodies of Christ, we are the body of Christ got elbows and big toes and kneecaps and all kinds of things. One body. You can't separate that. Now, some people get carried away with this verse and and try to say, all right, well, all distinctions among God's people have now been wiped out. There's no longer any distinction. And and that's not what this is is saying or, or teaching. Cultures still exist. diversity still exists. Men and women still exist with unique characteristics. Paul will even go on in other places in the New Testament to say, hey, men and women exist with unique roles and responsibilities in the church, in marriage. So so distinctions still exist what Paul's trying to show us is that they no longer create barriers. They don't don't any longer create barriers between us and God. It used to be that being a Gentile was a huge barrier between man and God. No more. No more. 
The distinctions no longer create barriers between us and God, and they should no longer create barriers between us. Right? They don't affect anyone's access to grace. They don't affect anyone's access to the Father. Now, it doesn't mean that I no longer have any distinctives as a person, but what it does mean is that I'm a Christian. I am a son of God before I am anything else. I'm a son of God before I'm an American. I'm a son of God before I'm white or black or brown. I'm a son of God before I'm rich or poor. I'm a son of God before I'm a man or a woman, before I wear any other label. If all barriers have been torn down between me and the Father, then of necessity all barriers have been torn down between me and the other sons of the Father. See, the gospel unites us all. Everything about the gospel unites us. The bad news of the gospel unites us. We all have the same need, and we all have the same inability to do anything about our need. We're also united in the good news of the gospel, too. If faith coming unites us to Christ and clothes us in Christ... How could I possibly look to someone else who's been clothed in Christ and look down on them, speak ill of them? So what's it like to be a Christian? What's it like? It's like being a son when you used to be an enemy. It's like being connected by faith to everything that my Savior has done for me. And as he unites me to himself, he unites me to a huge family of brothers and sisters that I have everything in common with. That's what being a Christian is like. Let's pray. Oh, Father, that we even get to call you that is scandalous. It is grace that should floor us. It should leave us speechless. That you took rebels and enemies, those who were opposed to you and hated you and made us into sons. Made us into heirs of all the promises that you promised to Abraham and to his offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you help us to see the folly of thinking that there's anything to add to being united to Christ, our perfect, loving, sacrificial Savior. Unite our hearts together 
in our experience like they're already united together in reality. And help us to live like it. Pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response to